Creating an overview of Friedrich Nietzsche presents unique challenges. There are many great videos and articles out there that are organized chronologically around his life or his works or that focus on his big ideas. But in this video, we're going to try something a little bit different. We're going to search for the thread of Ariadne that will lead us through the labyrinth of Nietzsche's incomparable brilliance. The hope is that with this red thread, we will then have a vantage point from which we can make sense of Nietzsche wherever we find ourselves in his work. With that in mind, if we were to zoom out as far as possible, we can see that the overarching concern of Nietzsche's philosophy can be seen as the dance between two poles, health and decadence, or to put it another way, between yes-saying and no-saying. The yes-saying wholeness of health and the no-saying decay of decadence are all about our individual and collective relationship to life and this world. Under these two umbrellas, we can gather the various elements of Nietzsche's philosophy. Under the umbrella of decadence, we can find Nietzsche's ideas of the ascetic ideal, slave morality and master morality, his critique of Christianity, science, Socrates, and all philosophy in general. Under the umbrella of health, we find the ideals of Dionysus and Zarathustra, of Greek tragedy and Zarathustra's three great doctrines of the eternal recurrence, the ubermensch, and the will to power. These two terms are flip sides of the same coin. They are a yin and yang whose dance is of the greatest importance in the current historical moment, in the pathological transitional stage that Nietzsche christened nihilism. But pathological as it is, this nihilistic transitional stage we are living through is not merely a curse, but a secret blessing to those with the nerve for it. The crisis of nihilism is the central problem of Nietzsche's later philosophy. This crisis is the consummation of millennia. It's not a chance occurrence, but the final fruit of what he calls the ascetic ideal, and more specifically of its most dominant Western form, Christianity. This crisis is first given voice in 1882's The Gay Science. Nietzsche's madman enters the marketplace one day saying, Whither is God? he cried. I will tell you, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. And with that, the crisis of nihilism burst into our culture's consciousness. But this crisis was not a new phenomenon. In the collection of notes published after his death under the title The Will to Power, we find the following. For why has the advent of nihilism become necessary? Because the values we have had hitherto thus draw their final consequence. Because nihilism represents the ultimate logical conclusion of our great values and ideals. Like a cancer, it had long been spreading through the body of Western culture. This nihilism was the fruit of the forces of decadence dominating our culture since before the rise of Christianity. Like a slow poison, it had rotten the culture from the inside, and only now was it reaching its endpoint. When the madman proclaimed the death of God in the gay science, he prophesied a calamity without equal. This long plenitude and sequence of breakdown, destruction, ruin and cataclysm that is now impending. An eclipse of the sun whose like has probably never yet occurred on earth. Nihilism then is the end product of decadence. But what exactly does Nietzsche mean when he says decadence? It's a term that emerges in the final years of his work. For him, it essentially means the opposite of health, its decay. More specifically, as he put it in The Twilight of the Idols in his final year of writing, health is decay of the instincts. To have to fight the instincts, that is the formula of decadence, 
as long as life is ascending, happiness equals instinct. The instincts then are a critical element in understanding the equation of health versus decadence. We usually think of Nietzsche as the father of existentialism, but he could just as equally be called the father of psychoanalysis as Freud, Adler, Jung and Frankel have all attested to. The problems that Nietzsche approaches were philosophical ones, but the manner in which he approaches them is psychoanalytical. The instincts, as Nietzsche talks about them, are in some sense transpersonal. Being outside of consciousness, they are part of a collective inheritance bubbling up from underneath our consciousness. This concern with the instinctual and its dance with the culture, sometimes dominating, sometimes repressed, is a prominent theme from the beginning of Nietzsche's career. His first work, The Birth of Tragedy, is about the birth of ancient Greek tragedy from the fusion of two forces in Greek culture, the Apollonian and the Dionysian. These are forces in the Greek psyche. The Apollonian is the pull towards consciousness and the differentiation of individuality. Dionysian is the expression of instinctual release. Dionysus was the god of wine and intoxication, and so this force in the psyche represents the desire for unity and the blissful dissolving into the instinctual. The birth of tragedy explores how the fusion of these forces gave rise to what Nietzsche considered the highest pinnacle art has ever achieved, classical Greek tragedy. Greek tragedy found the subtle balance. Nietzsche observed that wherever there were Dionysian festivals elsewhere in the ancient world, whether it was Rome or Babylon, it descended into chaos. The most savage natural instincts were unleashed, including even that horrible mixture of sensuality and cruelty, which has always seemed to me to be the real witch's brew. The instincts are equal parts essential and dangerous. On the one hand, these instincts are life itself. If we are cut off from the instincts, we are cut off from the animating principle of life. A person cut off from their instincts is like a car cut off from the fuel tank. We have no drive, no impulse, nothing happens. We are disconnected from the life force and so we begin to worry that life has no meaning. We become so disconnected from living life that we end up questioning the meaning of it. The intellect alone becomes sterile. As Nietzsche puts it in speaking about Socrates many years later in The Twilight of the Idols, the most blinding daylight, rationality at any price, life bright, cold, cautious, conscious, without instinct, in opposition to the instincts. All this too was a mere disease, another disease, and by no means a return to virtue, to health, to happiness. On the other hand, this realm of the instincts is what Freud would call the id, these instincts aren't necessarily socially acceptable. They cannot be indiscriminately expressed or else we would end up with Nietzsche's witch's brew. Society would crumble. As he also put it in Twilight of the Idols, in times like these, abandonment to one's instincts is one calamity more. Our instincts contradict, disturb, destroy each other. I've already defined what is modern as physiological self-contradiction. What Nietzsche praises so highly about Greek tragedy is that the Apollonian principle manages to contain the dark side of the instincts. It channels them into an artistic expression that enables the entire community to say yes to life, to suffering and to becoming. It harnesses the instincts in the service of healthy individuality. But the birth of tragedy doesn't just explore how tragedy came into being, but why it fell apart. And the answer is the great question master himself, Socrates. In Socrates, we find synthesized the two great suppressors of the instincts, morality 
and reason. These are two different strategies for controlling the instincts. And once Socrates' worldview gained power, in particular through Euripides, the balance between the Apollonian principle of consciousness and the Dionysian principle of instinctual life was broken down and the golden age of Greek tragedy came to an end. In his later works, Nietzsche digs down on these decadent suppressors of the instincts. Neither morality nor rationality can take us towards health. They are both stoppers in the bottle. They get the instincts under control at the cost of our health. Cut off from the instincts, our life grows sterile and the final fruit of this is the nihilistic crisis we find ourselves in today. But we now have no alternative. There's no going back to a time where we were in harmony with our instincts. In a section entitled Whisper to the Conservatives in Twilight of the Idols, Nietzsche writes that a reversion, a return in any sense or degree is simply not possible. We physiologists know that. Nothing avails. One must go forward, step by step, further into decadence. Meanwhile, in 1886's Beyond Good and Evil, Nietzsche orients our attention away from the past. What do their retrograde bypaths concern us? The main thing about them is not that they wish to go back, but that they wish to get away. A little more strength, flight, courage and artistic power, and they would want to rise, not return. And so, the path to health lies on the far side of our current state of decadence. With that in mind, it is important to understand Nietzsche's criticism of reason and morality as agents of decadence. We must keep in mind that the instincts can't be untethered, as we see in his criticism of antiquity's Dionysian festivals. But we also must remember that in Greek tragedy, a path between the rock of untethering and the hard place of suppression was found. A healthy relationship between the instincts and consciousness is possible. And this synthesis is what Nietzsche calls health and what he is in desperate search of. The first avenue of decadence then is reason. Nietzsche criticizes Greek philosophy as the decadence of the Greek instinct. It represents the attempt for reason to tyrannize over the instincts. In the history of philosophy, from Socrates' rationalism to Kant's categorical imperative and utilitarianism's greatest happiness principle, Nietzsche saw only a continued decadent attempt to drown out the torrents of the instincts. In The Antichrist he writes, What could destroy us more quickly than working, thinking and feeling without any inner necessity, without any deeply personal choice, without pleasure, as an automaton of duty? This is the very recipe for decadence, even for idiocy. The tyranny of reason then can only lead us to the meaning crisis of nihilism. Morality and religion are equally problematic. The philosophical morality of Socrates and the schools that followed him, from the Aristotelians and the Platonists to the Cynics and the Stoics, are all based on what Nietzsche calls the ascetic ideal. With Christianity, or as Nietzsche calls it, Platonism for the masses, the situation goes from bad to worse. This monstrous mode of valuation that is the ascetic ideal has produced an ascetic planet, a nook of disgruntled, arrogant and offensive creatures filled with a profound disgust at themselves, at the earth, at all life, who inflict as much pain on themselves as they possibly can out of pleasure at inflicting pain which is probably their only pleasure. These moralities turn us against our instincts for self-interest. When the decadent hears self-interest, they can only think of selfishness. But for Nietzsche, self-interest means self-care and self-love. 
These are essential elements in the psyche of the healthy individual. When seriousness is deflected from the self-preservation and the enhancement of the strength of the body, that is, of life, when anemia is construed as an ideal and contempt for the body is salvation of the soul, what else is this if not a recipe for decadence? These moralities turn us away from our instincts. The body, self-interest, even life itself are denied by these moralities. These ascetic ideals orient themselves towards another world, whether that's the hereafter of the religious or the ideologue. When the Christian condemns, slanders and besmirches the world, his instinct is the same as that which prompts the socialist worker to condemn, slander and besmirch society. The last judgment is the sweet comfort of revenge, the revolution which the socialist worker also awaits, but conceived as a little farther off. This is Nietzsche's famous slave morality, ascetic priests muttering about the evils of the flesh and the glories of the hereafter for the meek full of pity. In contrast to these lambs of God stand the powerful individuals of master morality, whose will cuts like a knife through the butter of this world, making it easy for them to affirm this life and this world without recourse to imaginary revenge in another world. The will of the weak, by contrast, is thwarted by the world. The bird of prey can love the sheep as a sort of sustenance and sport, as a reaffirmation of the bird of prey's power. But it is among the sheep that we see the emergence of slave morality. The ascetic priest speaks to the sheep of another world where all shall be judged. The evil birds of prey and any who act like them are evil and justice will be served upon them. This world is not the real world. This suffering is a test and while the birds of prey may seem to have it better, they will be judged harshly in the end. These are the lies that the weak have to tell themselves to reconcile themselves to this life. But this hatred of the strong, this need to place blame when we are feeling beaten back, this Nietzsche calls resentment, the specific evil of the sick. This bitter resentfulness of anger and blame is an anaesthetic according to Nietzsche. The weak use it to deaden pain by means of affects. To put it in the metaphor of the lamb and the bird of prey, the lamb deals with their suffering, with their fear and their impotence, by blaming the bird of prey and revenging themselves on the bird of prey and the cruel world by way of a moral lie. This strategy of using morality to deal with the chaos of the instincts is a disaster according to Nietzsche. He writes that the poisonous vegetation which has grown out of such decomposition poisons life itself for millennia with its fumes. The remedies of the ascetic ideal are helpful in the short term, but long term they are poisonous. They weaken the body and they weaken the will. The ascetic ideals offer help to those who are already sick, but the medicine ultimately makes the sick sicker. And so, faced with the problem then of how to reconcile ourselves to life and to the instincts, the slave morality of the philosophers and Christianity is a dead end. Having diagnosed this pervasiveness of the ascetic ideal and its various fruits including slave morality, Nietzsche contemplates possible counter-ideals. The ascetic ideal expresses a will. Where is the opposing will that might express an opposing ideal? Where is the match of this closed system of will, goal and interpretation? Why has it not found its match? Where is the other one goal? This counter-ideal is not to be found as many claimed even in Nietzsche's day with science, which, as he puts it, where it is not the latest expression of the ascetic ideal, 
and the exceptions are too rare, noble, and atypical to refute the general proposition. Science today is a hiding place for every kind of discontent, disbelief, gnawing worm, despectio sui, bad conscience. It is the unrest of the lack of ideals, the suffering from the lack of any great love, the discontent in the face of involuntary contentment. Science is an empty room. Like Socratic rationality, it is a sterile dead end. That other darling of modernity, democracy, is also a non-starter. Nietzsche calls it the heir to Christianity and describes it as the collective degeneration of man. This brings us to the other side of Nietzsche's philosophy. So far, we have focused on what Nietzsche wants to say no to. As he notes in the case of Wagner, this is where he dedicated most of his efforts. Nothing has preoccupied me more profoundly than the problem of decadence. This is Nietzsche's diagnosis of the illness affecting us, but now let's look at his prescription for health. Let's talk about what Nietzsche proposes as a counter-ideal. The clue to Nietzsche's counter-ideal can be found all the way back in the birth of tragedy with the idea of the Dionysian. In his autobiography Ecce Homo, written at the very end of his career, he describes himself as the first tragic philosopher. And at the end of this final work of his, he closes his career with the question, have I been understood? Dionysus versus the crucified. Or to put it another way, health versus decadence. In the golden age of Greek tragedy, there was a fusion between the Dionysian and the Apollonian. Those who think that Nietzsche is preaching the way of master morality should pay special attention to that Apollonian element and to the line quoted above that a reversion, a return in any sense or degree is simply not possible. We should also reiterate that there is an immense gap for Nietzsche separating the Dionysian Greek from the Dionysian barbarian. He is no believer in the unscrupulous unleashing of the instincts. What was exceptional in Greek tragedy was that the unbottling of the instincts, the opening of the Pandora's box of the unconscious, was contained by the Apollonian force in the Greek psyche. The Apollonian was the crucible capable of containing the volatile instinctual energies without shattering and dissolving into chaos. As his writing career progresses, these two forces become synthesized in Nietzsche. When he speaks of Dionysus in his later works, it is no longer an uncontrolled, frenzied, intoxicated passion, but a passion that is controlled and creatively employed. This vision of the Dionysian represents everything that Nietzsche felt was important. And above all, yes saying without reservation, even to suffering, even to guilt, even to everything that is questionable and strange in existence. And nobody embodies this yes saying Dionysian ideal of Nietzsche more than his favourite creation, Zarathustra. Zarathustra, the hero of Nietzsche's yes-saying work Thus Spoke Zarathustra, is the Dionysian counter-ideal that stands against the crucified one. He describes Zarathustra as the most yes-saying of all spirits. In him, all opposites are blended into a new unity, the highest and the lowest energies of human nature, what is sweetest, most frivolous and most terrible wells forth from one fount with immortal assurance. And this yes-saying spirit has three doctrines, the Ubermensch, the eternal recurrence, and the will to power. Each of these doctrines affirms this world, life, and becoming in their own way. Each is another way of saying yes to life. The eternal recurrence Nietzsche describes as the concept of Dionysus himself. It's a simple but brutal idea. 
This life, as you now live it and have lived it, you will have to live once more and innumerable times more. And there will be nothing new in it, but every pain and every joy and every thought and sigh and everything unutterably small or great in your life will have to return to you, and in the same succession and sequence. How well disposed would you have to become to yourself and to life to crave nothing more fervently than this ultimate eternal confirmation and seal? This for Nietzsche is the highest formula of affirmation that is at all attainable. He calls it the fundamental conception of Thus Spoke Zarathustra. There is no remnant of the otherworldly lies of the ascetic ideal here. It is just this life as it is from here until eternity. The Übermensch is what we are becoming. It is the overcoming of ourselves. In the prologue to Thus Spoke Zarathustra he writes that man is a rope tied between beast and overman, a rope over an abyss. The Übermensch is not a no-saying spirit. Unlike those under the sway of the ascetic ideal, from Socrates to the crucified, the Übermensch doesn't bow before another world, but only this one. Saying that the overman is the meaning of the earth, Zarathustra pleads with us to remain faithful to the earth, and do not believe those who speak to you of otherworldly hopes. Poison mixers are they whether they know it or not. Despisers of life are they, decaying and poison themselves, of whom the earth is weary, so let them go. Once the sin against God was the greatest sin, but God died and these sinners died with him. The sin against the earth now is the most dreadful thing, and to esteem the entrails of the unknowable higher than the meaning of the earth. And finally, there is the will to power. The will to power has meant a lot of different things to a lot of different people, and Nietzsche isn't exactly clear on his meaning. Scholars are divided in reading it as a psychological or a metaphysical concept. Psychologically, we can understand it as a fundamental tendency for living beings to overcome resistance in whatever goals they pursue. But metaphysically, it is a scientific hypothesis about the nature of reality itself. Nietzsche posits that this world is the will to power and nothing besides. This ambiguous nature of the will to power dovetails nicely with the concepts of the Übermensch and the eternal recurrence. These three doctrines can be read as thought experiments or rhetorical flourishes, but the way Nietzsche talks about them, there seems to be more going on. Nietzsche wants to bring about a revaluation of all values. He wants a tablet of values that leads the way to health rather than decadence. And he knows that rationality alone is simply decadence. He knows that the new tablet of values must cut deeper than conscious reason. Again, it is worth remembering that Nietzsche is the father of psychoanalysis and not merely the father of existentialism or postmodernism. Nietzsche was the first great thinker concerned with the new value structure that Western culture would live by. Nihilism, as we have noted, is a pathological transitional stage, which means that it is liminal space between stable value systems. God is dead, and in his place Nietzsche sees an opportunity. We have looked at how the death of God is a catastrophe, but Nietzsche also sees it as an opportunity. He writes, Indeed, we philosophers and free spirits feel when we hear the news that the old God is dead, as if a new dawn shone upon us. Our heart overflows with gratitude, amazement, premonitions, expectation. At long last, the horizon appears free to us again. The sea, our sea, lies open again. Perhaps there has never yet been such an open sea. And so Nietzsche is attempting to create a healthy tablet of values. 
He's looking to fill the position that Christianity held in the Western psyche with a value system that affirms the earth, the body, and becoming. It's a value system that would bring about a fusion between the conscious and the instinctual, rather than a suppression of the latter by the former. Nietzsche wants to say yes to life as it is and to affirm this world, this body, and these instincts. So, there is a blurring of the lines between the psychological and the metaphysical, as Nietzsche attempts to steer not just individuals, but the culture as a whole towards a new relationship with the world. The most powerful representation of this vision is Dionysus. The way forward beyond the utter collapse of meaning in the crisis of nihilism is via connection to the instincts. The way forward is the animation of the Dionysian, not a surrender to a hedonism, but a sublimation of passion into our lives, an affirmation of the body, of life, of everything. A fusion between intellect and instinct, an individuation that is still connected to the volcanic life force of the instincts. In these times of danger, we can afford nothing less than this greatest affirmation. After Nietzsche went mad in January 1889, he wrote a series of letters. Some of these he signed as the Crucified, and some he signed as Dionysus. When his sanity collapsed, we can see the tension of these two ideals pulling at his psyche. The same tension pulls at us today as we stand in the unresolved space of the meaning crisis. Health versus decadence, Dionysus versus the Crucified. That's everything for this episode of The Living Philosophy. I'd like to thank Shane, Croissant Eater, Abyssal Fayissa, David Pelabosian, and all the other patrons for their support of the channel. If you'd like to get access to weekly bonus episodes, monthly Q&As, and get your name in the credits like these fine people, then you can head over to Patreon. As ever, if you have any thoughts, insights, or feedback, I'd love to hear from you down in the comments. Otherwise, I shall see you next time. Thank you for watching.